0: chapter 29 of a child's history of england this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a child's history of england by charles dickens chapter 29 england under edward the VI. 6th henry the 8th had made a will appointing a council of 16 to govern the kingdom for his son while he was under age he was now only 10 years old and another council of twelve to help them. The most powerful of the first council was the Earl of Hartford, the young king's uncle, who lost no time in bringing his nephew with great state up to Enfield, and thence to the Tower. It was considered at the time a striking proof of virtue in the young king that he was sorry for his father's death. But, as common subjects have that virtue too, sometimes we will say no more about it. There was a curious part of the late king's will, requiring his executors to fulfill whatever promises he had made. Some of the court, wondering what these might be, the Earl of Hartford and the other noblemen interested, said that they were promises to advance and enrich them. So the Earl of Hartford made himself Duke of Somerset, and made his brother Edward Seymour a baron and there were various similar promotions, all very agreeable to the parties concerned, and very dutiful, no doubt, to the late king's memory. To be more dutiful still, they made themselves rich out of the church lands, and were very comfortable. The new Duke of Somerset caused himself to be declared protector of the kingdom, and was, indeed, the king. As young Edward the sixth had been brought up in the principles of the Protestant religion, everybody knew that they would be maintained but Cranmer, to whom they were chiefly entrusted, advanced them steadily and temperately. Many superstitious and ridiculous practices were stopped, but practices which were harmless were not interfered with. The Duke of Somerset, the protector, was anxious to have the young king engaged in marriage to the young Queen of Scotland, in order to prevent that princess from making an alliance with any foreign power. But, as a large party in Scotland were unfavorable to this plan, he invaded that country. His excuse for doing so was, that the border-men, that is, the Scotch who lived in that part of the country where England and Scotland joined, troubled the English very much. But there were two sides to this question, for the English border-men troubled the Scotch, too. And, through many long years, there were perpetual border quarrels which gave rise to numbers of old tales and songs. However, the protector invaded Scotland, and Arran, the Scottish regent, with an army twice as large as his, advanced to meet him. They encountered on the banks of the river Esk, within a few miles of Edinburgh, and there, after a little skirmish, the protector made such moderate proposals, in offering to retire if the Scotch would only engage not to marry their princess to any foreign prince, that the regent thought the English were afraid. But in this he made a horrible mistake. For the English soldiers on land and the English sailors on the water so set upon the Scotch that they broke and fled and more than ten thousand of them were killed. It was a dreadful battle for the fugitives were slain without mercy. The ground for four miles all the way to Edinburgh was strewn with dead men and with arms and legs and heads. Some hid themselves in streams and were drowned. Some threw away their armor and were killed running almost naked but in this battle of pinkie the english lost only two or three hundred men they were much better clothed than the scottish at the poverty of whose appearance and country they were exceedingly astonished a parliament was called when somerset came back and it repealed the whip with six strings and did one or two other good things though it unhappily retained the punishment of burning for those people who did not make believe to believe in all religious matters what the government had declared that they must and should believe. It also made a foolish law, meant to put down beggars, that any man who lived idly and loitered about for three days together should be burned with a hot iron, made a slave, and wear an iron fetter. But this savage absurdity soon came to an end, and went the way of a great many other foolish laws. The protector was now so proud that he sat in Parliament before all the nobles on the right hand of the throne. Many other noblemen, who only wanted to be as proud if they could get a chance, became his enemies, of course, and it is supposed that he came back suddenly from Scotland because he had received news that his brother, Lord Seymour, was becoming dangerous to him. This lord was now High Admiral of England, a very handsome man, and a great favourite with the court ladies, even with the young Princess Elizabeth, who romped with him a little more than young princesses in these times do with any one. He had married Catherine Parr, the late king's widow, who was now dead, and to strengthen his power he secretly supplied the young king with money. He may have even engaged with some of his brother's enemies in a plot to carry the boy off. On these and other accusations, at any rate, he was confined in the tower, impeached, and found guilty, his own brother's name being, unnatural and sad to tell, the first sign to the warrant of his execution— He was executed on Tower Hill, and died denying his treason. One of his last proceedings in this world was to write two letters, one to the Princess Elizabeth, and one to the Princess Mary, which a servant of his took charge of and concealed in his shoe. These letters are supposed to have urged them against his brother, and to revenge his death. What they truly contained is not known, but there is no doubt that he had, at one time, obtained great influence over the Princess Elizabeth. All this while the Protestant religion was making progress. The images which the people had gradually come to worship were removed from the churches, the people were informed that they need not confess themselves to priests unless they chose, a common prayer-book was drawn up in the English language, which all could understand, and many other improvements were made, still moderately. For Cranmer was a very moderate man and even restrained the Protestant clergy from violently abusing the unreformed religion. As they very often did, and which was not a good example. But the people were at this time in great distress. The rapacious nobility who had come into possession of the church lands were very bad landlords. They enclosed great quantities of ground for the feeding of sheep, which was then more profitable than the growing of crops, and this increased the general distress." So the people, who still understood little of what was going on about them, and still readily believed what the homeless monks told them, many of whom had been their good friends in their better days, took it into their heads that all this was owing to the reformed religion, and therefore rose in many parts of the country. The most powerful risings were in Devonshire and Norfolk, In Devonshire the rebellion was so strong that ten thousand men united within a few days, and even laid siege to Exeter. But Lord Russell, coming to the assistance of the citizens who defended that town, defeated the rebels, and, not only hanged the mayor of one place, but hanged the vicar of another from his own church steeple. What with hanging and killing by the sword, four thousand of the rebels are supposed to have fallen in that one county." In Norfolk, where the Rising was more against the enclosure of open lands than against the reformed religion, the popular leader was a man named Robert Kett, a tanner of Wimmenham. The mob were, in the first instance, excited against the tanner by one John Flowerdew, a gentleman who owed him a grudge. But the tanner was more than a match for the gentleman, since he soon got the people on his side, and established himself near Norwich with quite an army." There was a large oak-tree in that place, on a spot called Mousehold Hill, which Ket named the Tree of Reformation, and under its green boughs he and his men sat, in the midsummer weather, holding courts of justice and debating affairs of state. They were even impartial enough to allow some rather tiresome public speakers to get up into this Tree of Reformation, and point out their errors to them in long discourses, while they lay listening, not always without some grumbling and growling, in the shade below. At last, one sunny July day, a herald appeared below the tree, and proclaimed Ket and all his men traitors, unless from that moment they dispersed and went home, in which case they were to receive a pardon. But Ket and his men made light of the herald and became stronger than ever, until the Earl of Warwick went after them with a sufficient force and cut them all to pieces." A few were hanged, drawn, and quartered as traitors, and their limbs were sent into various country places to be a terror to the people. Nine of them were hanged upon nine green branches of the oak of Reformation, and so for the time that tree may be said to have withered away. The protector, though a haughty man, had compassion for the real distresses of the common people, and a sincere desire to help them. But he was too proud and too high in degree to hold even their favor steadily, and many of the nobles always envied and hated him, because they were as proud and not as high as he. He was at this time building a great palace in the Strand, to get the stone for which he blew up church steeples with gunpowder, and pulled down bishops' houses, thus making himself still more disliked. At length his principal enemy, the Earl of Warwick, Dudley by name, and the son of that Dudley who had made himself so odious with Empson in the reign of Henry the Seventh joined with seven other members of the council against him, formed a separate council, and, becoming stronger in a few days, sent him to the tower under twenty-nine articles of accusation. After being sentenced by the council to the forfeiture of all his offices and lands, he was liberated and pardoned on making a very humble submission. He was even taken back into the council again, after having suffered this fall, and married his daughter, Lady Anne Seymour, to Warwick's eldest son." but such a reconciliation was little likely to last, and did not outlive a year. Warwick, having got himself made Duke of Northumberland, and having advanced the more important of his friends, finished the history by causing the Duke of Somerset and his friend Lord Grey and others to be arrested for treason, in having conspired to seize and dethrone the king. They were also accused of having intended to seize the new Duke of Northumberland, with his friends Lord Northampton and Lord Pembroke, to murder them if they found need, and to raise the city to revolt. All this the fallen protector positively denied, except that he confessed to having spoken of the murder of those three noblemen, but having never designed it. He was acquitted of the charge of treason, and found guilty of the other charges. So when the people, who remembered his having been their friend, now that he was disgraced and in danger, saw him come out from his trial with the axe turned from him, They thought he was altogether acquitted, and sent up a loud shout of joy. But the Duke of Somerset was ordered to be beheaded on Tower Hill, at eight o'clock in the morning, and proclamations were issued bidding the citizens keep home until after ten. They filled the streets, however, and crowded the place of execution as soon as it was light, with sad faces and sad hearts, saw the once powerful protector ascend the scaffold to lay his head upon the dreadful block. While he was yet saying his last words to them with manly courage, and telling them in particular how it comforted him at that pass to have assisted in reforming the national religion, a member of the council was seen riding up on horseback. They again thought that the duke was saved by his bringing a reprieve, and again shouted for joy. But the duke himself told them that they were mistaken, and laid down his head, and had it struck off at a blow. Many of the bystanders rushed forward and steeped their handkerchiefs in his blood as a mark of their affection. He had, indeed, been capable of many good acts, and one of them was discovered after he was no more. The Bishop of Durham, a very good man, had been informed against to the Council, when the Duke was in power, as having answered a treacherous letter proposing a rebellion against the Reformed religion. As the answer could not be found, he could not be declared guilty, but it was now discovered, hidden by the duke himself among some private papers, in his regard for that good man. The bishop lost his office, and was deprived of his possessions. It is not very pleasant to know that while his uncle lay in prison under sentence of death, the young king was being vastly entertained by plays and dances and sham fights, but there is no doubt of it, for he kept a journal himself. It is pleasanter to know that not a single Roman Catholic was burnt in this reign for holding that religion, though two wretched victims suffered for heresy. One a woman named Joan Boscher, for professing some opinions that even she could only explain in unintelligible jargon. The other a Dutchman named Von Paris, who practised as a surgeon in London. Edward was, to his credit, exceedingly unwilling to sign the warrant for the woman's execution, shedding tears before he did so, and telling Cranmer, who urged him to do it, though Cranmer really would have spared the woman at first, but for her own determined obstinacy, that the guilt was not his, but that of the man who so strongly urged the dreadful act. We shall see, too soon, whether the time ever came when Cranmer is likely to have remembered this with sorrow and remorse." Cranmer and Ridley, at first Bishop of Rochester, and afterwards Bishop of London, were the most powerful of the clergy of this reign. Others were imprisoned and deprived of their property for still adhering to the unreformed religion, the most important among whom were Gardner, Bishop of Winchester, Heath, Bishop of Worcester, Day, Bishop of Chichester, and Bonner, that Bishop of London who was superseded by Ridley. The Princess Mary, who inherited her mother's gloomy temper, and hated the Reformed religion as connected with her mother's wrongs and sorrows, she knew nothing else about it, always refusing to read a single book in which it was truly described, held by the unreformed religion too, and was the only person in the kingdom for whom the old Mass was allowed to be performed. Nor would the young king have made that exception even in her favor, but for the strong persuasions of Cranmer and Ridley. He always viewed it with horror, and when he fell into a sickly condition, after having been very ill, first of the measles and then of the smallpox, he was greatly troubled in mind to think that if he died, and she the next heir to the throne succeeded, the Roman Catholic religion would be set up again. This uneasiness the Duke of Northumberland was not slow to encourage, for if the Princess Mary came to the throne, he who had taken part with the Protestants was sure to be disgraced. Now, the Duchess of Suffolk was descended from King Henry the Seventh, and if she resigned what little or no right she had in favour of her daughter, Lady Jane Grey, that would be the secession to promote the Duke's greatness, because Lord Guilford Dudley, one of his sons, was at this very time newly married to her, so he worked upon the King's fears and persuaded him to set aside both the Princess Mary and the Princess Elizabeth and assert his right to appoint his successor accordingly the young king handed the crown lawyers a writing signed half a dozen times over by himself appointing lady jane grey to succeed to the crown and requiring them to have his will made out according to law they were much against it at first and told the king so but the duke of northumberland being so violent about it that the lawyers even expected him to beat them and hotly declaring that stripped to his shirt he would fight any man in such a quarrel they yielded Cranmer also at first hesitated, pleading that he had sworn to maintain the secession of the crown to the Princess Mary. But he was a weak man in his resolutions, and afterwards signed the document with the rest of the council. It was completed none too soon, for Edward was now sinking in a rapid decline, and, by way of making him better, they handed him over to a woman doctor who pretended to be able to cure it. He speedily got worse." On the 6th of July, in the year 1,553, he died, very peaceably and piously, praying God with his last breath to protect the reformed religion. This king died in the sixteenth year of his age, and in the seventh of his reign. It is difficult to judge what the character of one so young might afterwards have become among many so bad, ambitious, and quarrelling nobles. But he was an amiable boy, of very good abilities, and had nothing coarse or cruel or brutal in his disposition, which in the son of such a father is rather surprising. End of chapter 29